bathrooms, sports teams, sex ed classes. Republican lawmakers in at least 14 states have passed laws restricting trans people in these spaces. Now Republicans have their sights on doctor's offices. We'll learn about gender-affirming care and why Republicans are trying to ban it. This is the Reset Podcast. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. At least a dozen states, including Indiana, have passed bills restricting gender-affirming care for transgender youth. So we wanted to check in with Lauren Chapman, who's a digital editor for Indiana Public Broadcasting. She's been reporting on this story for her station. Lauren, before we get to the details of the legislation recently passed in your state, just give us a clear definition. What is gender-affirming care? Yeah, so gender-affirming care is is more of an umbrella term <clears throat> for holistic care for gender dysphoria. Not all transgender folks will experience gender dysphoria, but for those who do, it is a clinically significant uh, stressor. So uh, gender-affirming care treats that from mental health supports, from social supports, like choosing new names and working uh, to to figure out, you know, how to create a, a space for them to, you know, explore their gender. Um, it also includes medicinal care uh, for folks, you know, of all ages. Um, and then uh, it also includes for some folks, uh, surgical care, uh, colloquially known as top or bottom surgery. I see. Indiana and Idaho are the most recent states to enact laws that limit and ban access to gender affirming care for minors. How did that play out in the state house? Yeah, so um, uh, Indiana um, passed its its uh, trans sports ban last year. Um, And uh, the governor at the time uh, had vetoed it. It was overwhelmingly overturned by Republicans in the state house. This year, uh, Indiana lawmakers filed nearly two dozen anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation or Mm -hmm. bills um, and covering a wide range of topics from uh, birth certificate bills that would basically write trans folks out of law um, to gender affirming care bans for minors, for uh, people who are involved in the Department of Corrections. Uh, to, uh, you know, Indiana's version of Florida's don't say gay bill. So under this, what advocates are really calling this crush of of bills, we had four pieces of legislation uh, that moved through past the midpoint of Indiana's legislative session. It's a short session, uh, or uh, Indiana's a part-time legislature. This year is our long session, which doesn't end until next Saturday legally. Um, so uh, the gender-affirming care ban for minors specifically faced a lot of pushback uh, from parents and providers and trans kids themselves who took to this, uh, you know, who offered testimony to lawmakers. Mm-hmm. Um Neither uh, that bill didn't actually receive a lot of pushback, you know, within the state house. Uh, Indiana has a supermajority of Republicans, and so it had a pretty easy go of of getting back, uh, getting sent to the governor, who signed it into law on April fifth. Uh, the bill itself doesn't take uh, effect until until July first, and there has already been a lawsuit filed to try and halt the bill before it does take effect. I see. So uh, we're we're digging into Indiana's Senate Bill 480 here, mm-hmm. right? Um, so help us understand, practitioners cannot provide things like surgery or hormone therapy, but in your reporting, you, you've noted that minors can't even get gender-affirming surgery anyway in Indiana. 
Yeah, I mean, so it, it goes against national and international guidelines. Uh, the Endocrine Society, uh, which is the kind of preeminent uh, uh, place for those standards, um, don't recommend uh, gender-affirming surgeries. Uh, so that's mastectomies, that's hysterectomies, that's, um, you know, uh, top and bottom surgery of, mm-hmm. of all different types. They don't recommend that for anybody under the age of 18. Um, so, so why we, add that to the legislation? Uh, there were... There was concern from lawmakers that uh, despite the testimony that they received both publicly and um, and, in one-on-one conversations with gender-affirming care providers in Indiana, um, that referrals were being offered by uh, organizations. It's, I mean, frankly, it is, it's, it's solving a problem that doesn't exist. And the other aspect of this is um, for all of the, the procedures that are banned under this bill, if you have a a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, then these these procedures are banned. If you do not, then you still have free access to any of these procedures. So a 16-year-old girl who is looking for breast augmentation can still get that in Indiana. But if she is is trans, then she cannot. Mm. And so that's kind of the, the unequal access uh, to a lot of these procedures. Uh, Procedures. The bill also prohibits physicians from making referrals or um, connecting yeah. patients with providers both in and out of state. So, what would the consequence be for a doctor who actually did that? Yeah. So the, the language itself is actually aid or abet. Um, so it uh, basically it it opens up uh, physicians to uh, discipline from uh, medical board uh, from the medical board. It opens them up to uh, consumer uh, complaints uh, that would be pursued by the Indiana Attorney General. Uh, there are you know it opens uh, physicians up to lawsuits um, from parents and from uh, from kids themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's a whole host of consequences that are not clearly defined in the legislation, which a lot of uh, a lot of legal groups have pointed to as a, a big red flag. Also, how do you how do you track whether a, a physician is providing referrals? How would they know? Yes, I mean that's that's one of the that's one of the issues with the the legislation that it seems uh, relatively unenforceable um, from from a lot of legal experts that you know it, it would require that a parent or child was was then pushing for a lawsuit, which, I mean, can get into some tricky territory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have a parent who is, you know, who is supportive of their trans kid, who is supportive of, of providing gender-affirming care, and you might have, you know, another parent who is a little bit more reticent, who, you know, sees that, oh, wait, no, this is going farther than I was comfortable with, that could open okay. up physicians to lawsuits. And so I, I think that you end up falling into two categories for, with physicians, Folks who are kind of like, you know, this this is the work that I do, and I am providing healthcare to a child, to you know, to a minor. Yeah. Um, and then the the other camp being that this could destroy my practice, so I'm just not going to touch it. There was some great reporting over the weekend in the New York Times about how after same sex marriage became the law of the land back in 2015, social conservative activists deliberately moved to focus on transgender issues. How long have transgender rights been something that GOP lawmakers in Indiana were interested in legislating? 
Yeah, so that, I mean, uh, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call the New York Times coverage of trans issues uh, good reporting, uh, consistently good reporting, but I would say that that is absolutely correct um, and does play out in Indiana. I talked to uh, the director of legal of advocacy for the uh, ACLU of Indiana, and she pointed back to basically the same timeline after um, marriage equality became the law of the land, uh, after uh, the Oberfeld decision. That's when we started to see, you know, bathroom bills and birth certificate legislation, but it never went forward. So we would have like, you know, three to maybe seven bills that were filed every single year in Indiana. They wouldn't get hearings. They would like make a lot of noise, but they really wouldn't move forward. And so the first significant one that did move forward um, outside of the things that were a little bit more in the periphery, like uh, the Religious uh, Restoration or uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act mm -hmm. or RIFRA. Um, the things that started to specifically target trans folks was the transgender sports ban. And that was passed in uh, in 2022. What's been the response from Hoosiers across the state? Where are their heads yeah. right now? Yeah, um, a lot of parents uh, and uh, a lot of trans kids themselves have said, you know what? If if this law takes effect, I have to leave. Um, another aspect of the, the law, um, assuming that it takes effect, is that if it does take effect on July 1st, uh, people who are already on puberty blockers would no longer have access to them and would no longer be allowed to take them for gender dysphoria. Okay. And for kids who are already on uh, hormone replacement therapy, also known as HRT, they would be forcibly detransitioned by the state by the end of the year. And so a lot of families are saying, you know what, we, Indiana's not good enough for me to put my kid at risk. So... We heard a lot of testimony where parents were like, we've already started looking at, you know, new states to move to. Mm -hmm. um, they've made some pretty significant economic arguments about, you know, Indiana being this this business friendly state, not being able to attract people because we are whittling away uh, gender affirming care options yeah. uh, for potential businesses. Um, there's also a group of parents that are a part of the class action lawsuit filed by the ACLU of Indiana um, who are you know, ready to fight this in court. Uh, Indiana's Republican Governor Eric Holcomb signed Senate Bill 480 into law on April 5th. Have there been any efforts by groups to reverse the governor's decision? You mentioned the ACLU's lawsuit. Yeah, so the, the ACLU's uh, pri uh, primarily leading that charge. Um, there are a handful of uh, trans organizations, trans advocacy organizations that um, are have, you know, worked with the ACLU who have protests this legislation. I mean, we, we kind of knew something like this was going to get uh, filed in Indiana. We knew this last October. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't. Uh, the, the, or the director of advocacy for the ACLU uh, said during an interview at one point she knew it was going to be bad. This was so much worse than she expected. Um, so there have been a, a lot of groups and organizations that have been working, you know, trying to work with lawmakers, trying to fight back against this. And one of the things that they've run into is that there are a handful of Indiana lawmakers that they've basically said are not interested in listening to people about trans issues. Mm -hmm. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. All around this country, Republican lawmakers are passing bills that restrict transgender rights. A dozen states, including Indiana, have moved to limit minors from receiving what's known as gender-affirming care. That care can include social, psychological, behavioral, and medical interventions that support a person's gender identity. That's 
different from the sex that the person was assigned at birth. Our guest is Lauren Chapman from Indiana Public Broadcasting. And right now we're joined by Nora Huppert, who's a staff attorney at Lambda Legal. That's a national legal organization that focuses on LGBTQ plus rights and for those who are living with HIV. Welcome to Reset, Nora. Thanks so much for having me. So you've been listening along to my conversation with with Lauren, of course. Now, earlier, I mentioned that Indiana is just one of over a dozen states at this point that is passing these laws limiting access to gender-affirming care. What other states are on that list? Sure. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, um, the drive to to pass these bills nationwide has really been um, skyrocketing in um, uh, this in this legislative session in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, you know, um, my office covers the Midwest, and I believe uh, it's Indiana, Iowa, and North Dakota at this point okay. that have passed bills in the Midwest. But, um, it, you know, quite a few of the other states in the Midwest are, are, have sort of pending legislation. And, and how similar are their laws to what we've been discussing from Indiana? So the, the gender-affirming care bans that have been um, introduced nationwide and, and passed um, Indiana's bill is fairly representative, I would say. Um, there are bans on gender-affirming care for uh, trans people under 18, which is you know, age-appropriate, evidence-based health care. Um, it bans medication and surgeries, um, and it, it contains exceptions, um, you know, as Lauren was discussing, um, for uh, analogous care for non-transgender people. Um, it allows for, you know, uh, m- most of these bills allow for um, surgeries on, on intersex young people, um, as Lauren was mentioning, you know, they um, allow for um, things like breast augmentations mm-hmm. for cisgender people. Um, so in that sense, it's, it, I would say it's fairly representative. Are other states, as far as you know, planning on banning treatment? Um, I'm hearing some steps have been made in Missouri, for instance, uh, recently. Uh, certainly. So um, there are pending bills in, in a little over a dozen states, and um, I think a lot of those are expected to pass. And then, um, you know, you mentioned Missouri. Missouri um, has had a, a pending bill in its state legislature that is fairly similar to other gender affirming care bans. Um, but in March, the state's attorney general also um, announced um, a so-called emergency regulation that would um, institute um, really severe restrictions for gender affirming care, um, including um, an extremely long waiting period for access to care. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, announced that that would be um, restrictions for people under 18. Um, but um, just this past Thursday, uh, he um, filed the emergency rule. And in fact, it reaches all trans people of any ages. And it attempts to institute um, as much as a three-year waiting period for access to care, which is just unsupportable um, under you know the overwhelming medical consensus. Other states, including Illinois, have sometimes been called trans refuge states, right? Are there a lot of states with... Uh... Democrats in control that are are passing laws to try and protect transgender rights, including gender affirming care? There are a fair number of of those states that have been passing these um, safe state or or refuge laws, um, like you discussed. Um, So um, what does that look like? What steps are they taking? Yeah. So the the concern is really, I think, um, you know, these are states where access to gender affirming care has been slowly improving and it's pretty decent, like California and Illinois. Um, but the concern is state laws in states that are really hostile to gender affirming care that attempt to reach outside the state and um, harm people who are in states with good access to care. Um, so some of the things these laws do, like the one in Illinois, um, is they, they provide protections against um, out-of-state extradition requests mm-hmm. that are based on out-of-state laws hostile to gender affirming care. 
um, protections from out-of-state subpoenas um, based on out-of-state laws uh, restricting gender-affirming care, um, protections for medical providers from uh, consequences from other states, um, and in some states limiting um, how the state's courts will um, enforce out-of-state custody orders from uh, courts in a, in a foreign state that is hostile to gender-affirming care. The big question here is um, where is this coming from? Why are we seeing this wave of of bills, right? Earlier I mentioned some reporting from the New York Times showing it was a strategic effort on the part of, of social conservative activists. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of why this is happening, it, I think it's a, a really complicated question. Um, and I think there's many components. You know, the first is sort of why go after young people, as so many of these bills do. You know, it's not just gender-affirming care bans. It's um, bills that go after um, trans students, young trans athletes that um, out queer and trans students in schools, um, prevent them from even talking about their identity. Um, and, and, you know, one question is why go after young people? Mm -hmm. And um, as you mentioned, you know, I think the groups that have really made this their identity um, have actually been very forthcoming about the fact that um, they are going where the consensus is. It's politically acceptable for them to go after something like gender affirming care for young people as an initial step. And then their plan is to uh, broaden attacks um, into adults, which is, um, you know, some of the escalation that we've seen even just recently, that that's already starting to happen. Um, and then, you know, the separate question is, why go after trans people in general? Why is that politically expedient? Um, and um, I'm not sure that it is, actually. Um, you know, recent sort of um, history uh, kind of bears out that um, the the movements that have really made this their, their purpose mm -hmm. um, haven't actually been all that successful as like an electoral or a pro popular project. Um, I, I don't think, with few notable exceptions, I don't, I don't think it's really been a winning cause. Um, but um, that still kind of leaves us in search of a motivation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I've heard lots of different sort of attempts to explain the sort of moment of anti-trans animus that we're in right now. I don't think any of them are like a perfectly unifying, satisfying answer. Um, I do think, you know, one um, explanation that, that does have some resonance for me that I have heard is that um, these anti-trans movements are really um, movements in search of solutions to other problems. So it is, you know, people in positions of power and influence who recognize that there is so much kind of furious pain in America, that people are hurting from the trauma of the pandemic, from rising inequality, gun violence, access to healthcare, all of these things that, um, you know, people across the country are demanding um, real answers to the, their day-to-day -day problems. And um, I think some, some, for some of these folks, they realize that they need something that looks like an answer, that looks like a solution. Mm -hmm. And so they sort of redirect that energy and that anger um, into a movement to attack trans people as kind of a figurehead, as, as a scapegoat. And I don't think that perfectly explains sort of all of it. Um, I think there are certainly groups that are, that are coming from wildly different angles, yeah. but that does have some resonance for me. Interesting. Lauren Chapman from Indiana Public Broadcasting is still with us. Lauren, you have noted a Supreme Court ruling in June 2020 shows where conservatives are on this issue. What can you tell us about that? 
Yes, uh, I. Uh, this is my favorite thing in the whole wide world to talk about. Uh, so bear with me. Um, so in 2020, uh, the same Supreme Court uh, that struck down uh, Roe v. Wade uh, also upheld uh, employment protections for trans folks and for LGBTQ folks um, for the wider umbrella of, of folks uh, under the LGBTQ umbrella. Um, and that decision was called Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia. Um, a lot of the out-of-state groups uh, that have been working in Indiana um, have predominantly been mobilized by that decision. Um, and basically, they're uh, they're using the same tactic that was used to strike uh, to you know cut down uh, abortion access across the country, which is. Um, you know, getting friendly legislatures, uh, pointing back to a little bit to what Nora was talking about, going to friendly legislatures with model legislation that they can then have challenged in court that will help whittle down protections specifically for transgender Americans uh, under the umbrellas of education, like with, you know, trans sports bans, under the umbrella of uh, medicinal care, under these gender affirming care bans, and so on and so forth. To, to mm-hmm. essentially narrow and whittle down the the decision made by um, made with Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, yeah. and that's certainly what we've seen in Indiana. That there's a, a direct response from several out of state groups that have very little to do with what day to day Hoosiers care about with mm-hmm. with trans folks in Indiana. Well, we're just about out of time, but I just want to hear briefly from each of you what you've got your eye on next with this issue. You first, Lauren. Yeah, um, I will be following the the lawsuit. There's uh, another gender affirming care ban that is uh, still uh, on the governor's desk uh, for uh, folks who are uh, incarcerated that I'll be watching. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there's still uh, there's a week and a half left of Indiana's legislative Absolutely. session. Absolutely. Nora? Uh, for me, it's the, the dramatic escalation of this fight into the realm of adult care. You know, I mentioned the Missouri emergency regulation a little bit earlier. Um, and um, my colleagues at Lambda Legal and I, in partnership with the ACLU of Missouri, have announced that um, we are taking any necessary legal action against that regulation. And um, I worry that this marks a kind of inflection point where um, more there will be more and more energy into going after adult, adult trans people and banning gender-affirming care for adults. We've been speaking with attorney Nora Hubbard from Lambda Legal and uh, Lauren Chapman from Indiana Public Broadcasting about transgender rights and gender affirming care. Thank you both. Now let's hear from one person in the transgender community in Indiana about their story and how they're feeling as state after GOP-led state passes laws to restrict access to a type of medical care that they've received. Jessica Burden is a recent graduate of IUPUI. That's Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, tell us, what does gender-affirming care mean to you? Gender-affirming care, I think, can mean a lot of things. It can encompass um, a lot of things that we hear um, talked about in this discussion, uh, whether that be surgeries or hormones, but it can also be getting therapy. It can also be laser hair removal. It can also be voice training. I think that there are a lot of things that can be considered gender-affirming care. Yeah. And you've been uh, receiving gender-affirming care for about a year now. So catch us up. What's that been like for you? Sure. Um, It's definitely been super great for me, but um, it's it's a very complicated process to to start. So I I started, like like you said, about a year ago, Mm -hmm. um, I started taking hormones. And I would say that that has definitely radically improved my life. 
What's different now? How has your life changed? Living with dysphoria can be really overwhelming at times. And so having a body that I feel more comfortable in has allowed me to feel um, happier and more confident in my day-to-day life. So when you hear about states, including your state, passing legislation that's going to block minors from getting this type of care, what goes through your mind? It's, It's really worrying. I've stayed sort of involved and up to date with everything that's happening, um, at least in my state. And it's really scary because I know that restricting this care for for minors is really going to to hurt them because I know how much it helped me. And so it's worrisome to think about um, how much is going to hurt them. But furthermore, it scares me to think what what's going to happen in the future? Because I, I kind of doubt that this is where the legislation is going to stop. And what does that mean for the future here in my state, in the country, and for myself personally? Yeah. And back to your personal journey, I mean, you've talked about how the care has has drastically improved your life. But I, I want to go further back, Jessica. Talk about your journey getting to this point. When was it that you first knew that transitioning was something you wanted to do? I was probably maybe 15 years old when I started to really start to feel like something was maybe different about myself. And so sort of as I got to be 16 years old, um, that's whenever I really started to to figure out who I was. I started dressing in a way that made me happier. And it just took a very long time to be able to get to get to a point where I could start um, receiving the care that I wanted. But mm-hmm. I decided even back then, when I was 16 years old, that this is what I needed to do. Did you share that with anyone? I I did. And I had some, you know, pushback from my peers, as well as my parents, and even the school itself, um, when it came to my, my gender identity. What were their main concerns? What did they say? I think that there can be a lot of concerns. Um, what what was difficult um, for my parents um, was just not maybe having that, having an understanding of what it meant, but understanding that it would put me in more danger. And I think ultimately their response came from a place of fear mm. um, and not from a place of love. And I think for the, for the school system, it came from a place of how do we, how do we manage this in a way that's not going to upset other students, upset um, their parents, um, while also being respectful to me? So a, a few years later, uh, entering college, this was in the fall of 2019, that was when you felt even more freedom to live and, and be yourself. Talk about yes. how, how did the change in environment affect you? Sure. Getting getting away from the uh, the small town that I grew up in um, and moving here to Indianapolis, I was able to find a community that was a lot more accepting. And so I felt a lot more comfortable being using the name that I use now, Jessica, um, and using the pronouns I wanted to use and being able to dress how I wanted every day. And that was a that was a huge step for me. And I mentioned that you started college in the fall of 2019, but we both know what was right around the corner from that. Right. COVID impacted the entire globe. So how did you navigate that? What happened when the pandemic hit? When the pandemic hit, um, they kicked everybody out of the dorms and I had to move back in with my parents. 
And that was a really difficult time in my life. Um, so I ended up staying there for about maybe five months um, in 2020 with my parents before I was able to get an apartment by myself. And that was a really challenging time because I was doing all my, my classes online, um, being able to be myself sort of in my room and then needing to, you know, leave my room and see my family and then having to be somebody I wasn't, changing my my clothes and my appearance. Um, mm. It was very difficult. And so by the time that um, I was ready to move back to Indianapolis and get an apartment, I, I was definitely, I definitely knew that would be a lot better for me. Yeah. So the, the back and forth sounded like it, it made things a little difficult. Absolutely. When did you start looking into gender affirming care? I think I started looking into it in, in 2019 after I moved to Indianapolis, okay. but it sort of got put on hold because of the pandemic. And so I think it was probably about halfway through 2021, maybe July, that I started looking into it a little bit closer um, and getting on the wait list for Eskenazi Health here um, in Indianapolis. But they, they have a pretty long wait list. And at the time, it was about seven months. It, it may be longer now. I, I'm not sure. Wow. But it takes some time to get to get that care. And so I, I waited several months and then I wasn't able to start until January of last year. So it took you some time to find your own provider. Yes, um, it can be challenging. It's it's not as simple as just going into the doctor and saying, hello, this is what I would like. And they just give it to you. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Jessica Burden about the gender-affirming care they've received in recent years in Indiana. That state recently joined about a dozen others in banning this type of medical care for minors. The new law in Indiana, which was signed this month, it's part of a wave of anti-trans legislation that's been passed by Republican lawmakers in state houses around the country over the past few years. Tell us more about treatment, Jessica. What does that look like? I, I can look different for different people, especially at, at different stages in their lives. Um, for me right now, I, I am receiving, um, I'm taking hormones. I am receiving uh, laser hair removal on my face and I've been doing voice training. But obviously as I get older, the care that I receive may change, um, including surgeries and those sort of things later on down the line. Mm-hmm. Well, you're someone who's still continuing treatment. So what would you say to a person listening to us right now who maybe opposes gender-affirming care? What do you think they should know? I think that what they should try to understand is the benefit that it has towards mental health. And even if you do not necessarily agree or even believe in trans people, you can, there's a lot of data that's, that shows that if you are trans and you are on HRT, mentally, you are going to be doing a lot better. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed your state's ban on gender-affirming care into law on April 5th. So do things feel different for you now? I think I, I they don't, but only because I knew it was coming, because I've been following things so closely. But looking towards my future, I think that they really do feel different because although the, this ban only applies for minors, I am very, very worried about the real possibility of maybe next year seeing a ban on all um, transgender health care and gender-affirming health care. And so I'm thinking about leaving the state um, mm. before then. 
to make sure that I don't um, have that access taken away from me. So there might not be a future for you in Indiana, depending on how things go. I I already would say that I think that there isn't long term because the the state has shown where their priorities lie and that they don't want me here. So the ban is set to go into effect in July. At this point, the ACLU of Indiana, they've filed a lawsuit against it. But how do you think that this could impact the trans community in Indiana at at large if it's enacted? Um, I think definitely in a very negative way, um, especially for for youth and those who have children, because that's who it applies to. Of course, you know, there are a lot of adults like me who are having to sort of grapple with this fact. Mm-hmm. But I think for those those kids, especially um, if it does go into effect, um, the ones who are already on HRT will have to detransition within a certain number of months. Um, and I could see how that would be incredibly, incredibly painful to have the thing that you need and then have that taken away and how much that would hurt. What does detransition look like? I don't know that I'm properly equipped to answer this question um, because I don't know anybody personally who has detransitioned. Okay. But um, what I what I can say is that being um, choosing to detransition is very different than being forcibly detransitioned. Mm-hmm. And um, but I I don't know exactly what all those effects sort of look like. This. Have you been having any other conversations with with trans people about this issue? I'm curious what you're hearing other mm-hmm. folks say. Well, of course, I, I've been talking to to my partner, um, who's non-binary, about what you know, what we're going to do. Um, but sort of talking to the community at large, I think a lot of people just feel afraid and they don't quite know what to do. Um, especially people who I've been out, you know, protesting with and those sort of things. You try to be active, you try to be involved, and then when things still go through, you sort of say, well, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. And that's a complicated question because you can, you know, do you choose to leave or do you do you choose to, to stay and fight for the people who can't leave? Um, maybe those who don't have the same options that you do. And so it's not necessarily a, a simple question of what to do now. We've been speaking with Jessica Burden, a, a recent college grad about their experience with gender-affirming care. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your story. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. That episode of The Reset Podcast was produced by Micah Yason and Michael Liptrot. It was edited by Ethan Schwab and Stephanie Kim. Now, if you appreciate conversations like this, send it to a friend. Maybe it'll kickstart another conversation. How cool would that be? Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk again soon. 